Extraordinary. Leader. Innovative. Integrity. Honest. Courageous. Curious. Thoughtful. Brave. Unafraid. There is a place where technology and art meet, where work and play are one and the same. When the threads of curiosity are pulled in this place, the spark of innovation ripples across industries. Those who make this place their home are giants, titans who pursue creative passion while leaving their mark. Creative. Flexible. Brilliant. Clever. Confident. They are courageous thought leaders set on changing the practice of dentistry and their corner of the world. More than the sum of their parts, we deconstruct the traits that bind these uncommon innovators. Humble, daring, disciplined, playful, principled, spontaneous. To discover what makes them contrary to ordinary, where we explore the extraordinary. Hi there, I'm Dr. Kim Cooch, host and founder at Carry Free. I'm fascinated by what makes the paradigm shifters, world shakers, and art makers tick. Let's embark on a journey. Extraordinary is a place where ordinary people choose to exist. Together, we will trek the peaks of possibility, illuminate the depths of resilience, and navigate the boundless landscape of innovation. To discover how some of the most innovative dentists and thought leaders unlocked their potential and became extraordinary. On this season of Contrary to Ordinary, we'll continue to explore the motivation, lives, and character of the innovators who see limitless potential around them. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the four-legged creatures that bring so many of us joy, our pets. We'll be returning to dentistry soon enough, but I'm excited to include some conversations with extraordinary people that will expand your horizons and make you think a little differently. Pets are, in many ways, a mirror to ourselves. If we care for and invest time in them, you're going to see all that reflected back at you tenfold. If you neglect them, well, you get the idea. My guest today is Dr. Rick Campbell, the retired founder of Willow Creek Pet Center, the largest veterinary group practice in the United States. In the world of veterinary medicine, Rick is extraordinary. He's treated thousands upon thousands of animals across his career and was one of the first people to recognize the importance of early years training for dogs. For Rick, it's never been about money. Like many extraordinary people, he's always sought to serve. He's been described as a continuous learner that strives to be the best in all he does. Rick and I actually studied together at Westminster University, and I'm so blessed to be able to call him my friend. But let's go back to the beginning. What did growing up look like for a young Rick Campbell? I was uh, the middle child of three. I have an older sister who passed away recently and a younger sister. And I grew up on the East Bench in Salt Lake City, which at that time was kind of a rural neighborhood because we had orchards around us and things like that. And uh, sadly, you know, it was a very, uh, let's say, religious neighborhood (laughs) to Utah, And uh, my parents ended up getting a divorce and consequently leaving my mother, who hadn't even finished her high school education, to raise three kids and put the roof over our head. And uh, my father, who was told to pay $50 per child per month, he never paid a nickel. I was basically told to, hey, better get a job. You need to work. So I started out mowing lawns and delivering newspapers and doing all kinds of things to earn income. And when it came time for new school clothes, I paid for them. 
that's the way it was, the way I was growing up. My father basically disappeared from my life from the age of 10 till uh, 25. And during that time, I was fatherless. So I had to kind of make my way by myself. And this was back in the 60s when we had the good old Vietnam War going on. And consequently, the draft was looming over my head and everybody and their brother was running from that. And we had this lottery system. And uh, lo and behold, I was trying to work full time and go to school full time and it just wasn't working. So I thought to myself, why not enlist in the Navy? So I did. And first of all, they gave me these entrance tests and I scored really, really high on them. Uh And so high that they said what you'd be best suited for would be in top secret communications. So I got my clearance and I went to this A school in Florida. And uh, it was a very, very competitive, intense course for eight months with 25 classmates. And um, at the end of the eight months, I missed the boat by one point where the person who came in first in that class got to declare where in the world he wanted to spend his enlisted life. So he got to go to London, England and do embassy duty there for the next four years. And me, on the other hand, well, they dumped me in North Africa, which at that time I was thinking, oh, gosh, this has got to be a horrible place, horrible, horrible. Well, while all of my friends were at home listening to the Marrakesh Express, I was over in North Africa riding the Marrakesh <laughs> Express. <laughs> and consequently, the military gave me something that a lot of young guys don't get. Uh as discipline. And like when I met you, Kim, you had not only discipline, but you also had direction, a goal you wanted to achieve. I got my discipline, which I hadn't had before from the military. And that also gave me the GI Bill, which helped me pay for my education once I was discharged from the military. But it also gave me a way to uh, continue on with what I wanted to do. So after the military, I came back and I was just energized. You know, I was, what, 23, 24, 25, something Uh like that. And I got accepted to the University of New Mexico where I really, really excelled. I mean, I was off the charts down there. Uh But it wasn't home. I wanted to come home. And my family had dispersed. And so I ended up coming back to the University of Utah, which... Sadly, I got rather disgusted with because, you know, here I was 25 years old sitting in classes which were taught by television with uh, 17 and 18 year olds. Right. And when you raise your hand with a question in a television class, nobody calls upon you. I ended up transferring to Westminster where I met Kim on my first class there at the interim class in January. And we hit it off really, really well. And we both had these goals and he had a better direction than I did. But anyway, I kept on pursuing top grades in mathematics, biology, physics, et cetera. And um, I achieved those goals. I'm listening to your story here. So you were fatherless really from age 10 to 25. Correct. I look at that age period, like particularly teenage years for boys. Those are like really critical years to have a male figure in your life. So did you have any kind of mentor or somebody in your life at that point in time that that mentored you? I did have 
some father-like figures. Uh-huh. One was uh, an uncle of mine. Several of them were past employers of mine. I learned early on that I really, really enjoyed work. My uncle, he kind of took me under his wing when my family fell apart and said, here, kid, come on down here and you're going to work with me in the shop. And he had an automobile dealership right down here in downtown Salt Lake. Oh, wow. Only about four blocks from here. And uh, my uncle was a unique car dealer. Okay, He never came to work in a flashy suit with a flashy tie. No, 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 no. Uncle Milt, he was decked out in his blue, greasy monkey suit, and he was always in the back shop, and he was a master mechanic. He could fix anything. And I marveled at what he could do. But he was, um, let's say he had a short fuse. And so consequently, I knew it, and I'd seen what had happened, And so I never, ever wanted to cross him. (laughs) Milt, who was, I don't even think he made it to five foot two, whatever he wanted, I got it for him immediately. What kind of traits, what kind of things did you learn from him that you carried forward in your life that you would consider that was a really valuable learning experience or a valuable trait that had an impact on you? Well, the funny thing was his service manager, because Milt was the master mechanic in the back. His service manager, his name was Kermit. And Kermit was this, uh, he used to be the uh, Mercedes-Benz national uh, mechanical instructor. Okay? Oh, wow. And then he came back to work and he just went to work for Milt. And Kermit was an amazing man. And, and I saw how he had to deal with people. And the two-legged animal is a difficult one to understand. And here again, you don't want to cross them when their car's not prepared at the time that you promised. So everybody had to hustle to get things done so that clients would come back at the appointed time and, and have their car finished to their satisfaction. Rick's certainly right about the two-legged animal being challenging to understand at times. We can be irrational, hard-headed, and completely immovable for reasons only known to ourselves. But then again, there's a lot of joy to be had in working with people. I've certainly found a lot of satisfaction in the small moments of hope and happiness I've had with patients on their care journey. When I was growing up, I lived on a farm. After school, me and my sister would play with our dog for hours and hours. I would say that he was probably my best friend. These were the days before computers or smartphones, of course, so we'd stay outside until it was time for dinner. So did Rick have a moment where he decided he was going to dedicate his life to animals? That's a very good question because when I was 10, I had a friend named Dwayne. okay? His grandfather had a ranch, farm, whatever, up in... uh, northern Utah, and I'd go there periodically every Saturday with he and his grandfather, and we'd work all day long on the farm, you know. Uh And then his granddad would take us down to the local store, and we'd get a knee-high grape, you know. And that was the greatest thing ever. But we both talked about becoming a veterinarian then. Right. So this is something in your life journey, early in your life, you thought about being a veterinarian. I thought about it, but the thing was, because of my circumstances, I didn't think I was worthy of it. 
And that's what I had to change. Right. And I honestly, you were there when I broke it to the world. <laughs> we were sitting on your combine and, and I told you, I yeah. said, I'm changing direction yeah. from this way to this way. I think you were headed into oceanography or something yep. at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Well, kudos to you. I mean, Rick, you've made such a huge impact as a veterinarian on so many people's lives oh. and so many animals over the years. I think of 146 employees and 10 veterinary doctors that you got to mentor. What a loss for the world it would have been. I'm sure you'd have been an unbelievable oceanographer, but you certainly had the skill and the, that inner drive and that talent. Like I say, I call you the dog whisperer. So, <laughs> and I think that title is well earned. Looking back, you had some real challenges growing up. How did young Rick deal with challenges? I learned early on that if I worked I could earn. If I could earn, then I could survive. And so consequently, I, I didn't want to get muddled down into the family stinkum, you know, so I would go off and work. That was my escape. And I kept on working at all these variety of jobs in all types of things. Looking back at your life and where you are today, do you ever just look back in amazement and go like, wow, how did this happen? How did I really get here? Yeah. Do you ever look at that? I do. I stand in amazement. I never, ever thought I was going to have this large veterinary practice. That was never the goal. The goal was having clients come in, addressing their problems with their pets to the best knowledge I could give them, and go home and be happy that their pet is healthy with the greatest, best outcome. And that's what I mentored all of the staff because in a lot of ways, a lot of people that work in the veterinary business are introverts. Well, that's true, I think, in a lot of healthcare professions, which is kind of ironic. It is. And so what I would have to do is teach them, okay, what job do you want to do? And if they came in as a veterinarian, I would have to say, okay, you know, you're looking at me, you're signing a contract with me, and you're expecting all of this from me. But I got news from you. It's going to come from what you do and how you please that client and how you please that patient. Because as we all know, especially in this day and age, it's very easy to get a one-star review, right. <laughs> but it's near impossible to get a five-star yeah. review. <laughs> and the bad news there is somebody that leaves a one-star review tells 11 people on average about you and the person that leaves a five-star review tells two people or less. Agreed. Bad news travels faster than good news, I think, right? We're, yep. we're so, we as a, as a human race tend to be so critical and so quick to judge. No one's perfect. <laughs> the funny thing about it, now that I'm retired, I intentionally go out there and put five-star reviews everywhere I can. And yeah. every time somebody asks me, how did I do? And I'll tell them simply, you know, you did great here. Maybe you need a little help here. But at least I'm pushing them in a positive direction. Right. And that's what I did with our staff. And that's how the staff grew. Let me tell you about one thing. We were the first veterinary hospital in the state of Utah to become computerized. Okay. And then we were the first veterinary hospital to provide benefits for our staff. And we invested in their training. 
Consequently, our staff was very, very much sought after by all of these neighboring veterinary hospitals, okay? And by golly, you know, every few weeks or a month or so, somebody would come and knock on my office door and say, hey, Dr. Rick, can I have a few words with you? And I'd say, sure, come on in, sit down. Can I get you a cold bottle of water? And they'd say, well, you know, I've got some bad news to tell you. And I said, what's that? And they'd say, well, so-and-so veterinary clinic down the road there, they've offered me a far better deal, you know, a far better job and everything like that. They were expecting to have me blow up, and I didn't. I simply looked at them and said, you know, the one thing I've always wanted you to do was climb the ladder of success. Right, yeah. And become successful at what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. So if, by golly, if going down there for a better job is going to be better for you, I'm all in for it, the whole thing. Right. But if you get down there and you find out that, hey, 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 what they told you, what they promised you did not come true, then remember one thing. And they'd say, what's that? And I'd say, the door you're walking out of will always be open for you to return. Right, yeah. And after all those years, decades as a veterinarian, I had 146 employees, and I swear over two-thirds of them had left and come back. Oh, wow. That's a real testament. Well, guess what? When they came back... They were even better than they were before. <laughs> they I think they appreciated. I was going to say they they didn't know yeah. what they had. They appreciated it yeah. more when they came back, and probably felt even luckier to to be in the position that they were in. It, it goes back to this negativity. Yeah, thing. yeah. People need to have choices. I think not condemning people for making the best choice for themselves is such a fresh and much needed approach. And it ultimately caused a lot of talent to boomerang back around into Rick's world. I think a lot of people in positions of power can learn from Rick and how he's fostered the talent of the future with kindness. You can probably tell already that Rick is a pretty optimistic guy, but has he always been a positive person? I believe I am, but I, it's become more and more programmed and and learned, too, because everybody and their brothers can have hard times in their life. That's, right. that's oh, what yeah. life is all yeah, yeah. about. Everybody gets Everybody. Yeah. Rather than having you say, oh, gosh, why is this happening to me? We should be saying, gosh, what did I just learn from this experience? And how can I move on in a better direction? That should be our response. And it's something that you will enjoy. Okay. When I was in veterinary school, boy, it was intense learning, science, pharmacology, surgery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. lots. Uh, and, and then when I got out, I was, uh, went to work in the San Francisco Bay Area. And then I learned, wow, there's a huge difference between the academic life back there at Colorado State University, where every animal that came into that hospital was the creme de la creme, okay? They were the best of the best. So you'd have these enormous bulls and these enormous stallions, okay? And, you know, attack-trained dogs and, and all kinds of animals like this that were, guess what? They were all well-behaved. Yeah. 
okay? Right. And then I get out in the real world in California, and the animal becomes, oh, yeah, he lives out in the backyard. He's our backyard ornament. And we don't care for him. We just throw him some food and water once in a while, and that's that. And then they're wondering why on earth is he so misbehaved? So you hear about all of these no-kill shelters and things like that. Uh-huh. Well, Dr. Rick solved that problem back in the 80s, okay? The thing was, there was that story about Marley and me. Right, yeah, yeah. Everybody had watched that movie called Marley and Me about the most misbehaved Labrador there ever was. And way back then, you were not allowed to take your dog to training until they were seven months of age. And that's like telling a parent of a child, your kid cannot go to school can't go to preschool, can't go to kindergarten, can't go to elementary school, but the first day of school for that child will be the first day of seventh grade. Right. They're teenagers. And they better be well-behaved. Well, that's the problem. Yeah. Was all of these dogs had to wait till they're seven months of age to go to training, and they all got booted out of training because they were so misbehaved, just like Marley. Right. Okay? So the funny thing was... I noticed that, and I said, you know, I, I'm going to start a dog training center. And this this is clear back in 1983. Yeah. And I partnered with two women that belonged to the local dog training club, okay? Uh-huh. And they were the leaders of the club. And I said, hey, do you want to do this just every Tuesday night, or do you want to make a career out of this? And they said, boy, we would love to make a career out of this. I said, well, come and join me, Okay. And they did. And they put together this obedience training package that lives to this very day. Oh, okay? that's cool. And we, we had over a dozen dog trainers. The first trick they did was they lowered the entrance age down to 10 weeks. And then they lowered it down to eight weeks. Wow. So we're receiving puppies at eight weeks of age. And every dog training facility in all of North America, way back in the 80s, long before Caesar and all that bunch, they came down on us hard. You can't do that because they're too young. And they were going to get sick because they're going to have parvo or distemper or something like that. We never, ever had one sick puppy. Wow. But we trained thousands and thousands and thousands of dogs to be obedient and well-behaved. Today, training puppies at a young age seems like a no-brainer, but there always needs to be someone there to think outside the box and challenge the status quo, even if that challenge seems like an appeal to common sense. So what does Rick see as the greatest achievement of his career? Once upon a time, not many decades ago, but the Humane Society was opening up their brand new multi-million dollar facility. And who did they call? They called Dr. Rick. Dr. Rick, can you have a dog trained to go up and untie a bow for a grand opening? Oh, wow. And I said, yes, I can do that. And talked with one of the trainers. She had a great dog. And she trained the dog on her own free time how to walk up to a bow, 
grab the loose end, and untie the bow. Wow. They did it with this massive media thing uh, across the televisions, newspapers, right, right. and the whole yeah. works. Yeah, yeah. And for weeks afterwards, the Humane Society got thousands of phone calls saying, I want to adopt that dog. Yeah. yeah. Okay? Because he was well-trained and well-behaved. Well, it so happened that I had a little powwow with these leaders of the local shelters, pounds, and humane societies. Uh And I said to them, I know your secret. I know what you're dealing with. And I I have a solution for you. Okay? And the secret is 75% or more of the animals that are abandoned at all the shelters, pounds, and humane societies are abandoned there while they're teenagers, that means less than two years of age, uh-huh. for behavior problems, okay? So it costs them their lives. Right. And they never had the opportunity to learn good behavior. Correct. The, the two-legged animal couldn't take an hour out of their schedule once a week to take their dog to training. Yeah. That's how bad it was. And they'd say, well, if you chew on my shoe one more time, hop in the back seat. We're going to the pound. That's that. And the thing about it is... <laughs> good thing. I'm sitting here thinking, Rick, good thing we don't have pounds for two-legged humans, <laughs> yes. right? Because there's been a lot of teenagers exactly. going go to the pound. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Grandchildren are the reward for not killing your own children <laughs> while they were teenagers. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, and that's the whole truth. Well, the funny thing was these directors of these shelters, pounds, and humane societies... They heard my message. Wow. And they knew that this was happening. People are abandoning their ill-behaved pets for behavior issues, okay? Anyway, so we partnered with them and said, listen, you adopt a pet out and you want him to have his forever home. But what we need to do is we need to make a pact that that new pet owner is going to bring that newly adopted pet to training. And when they get those problems worked out with their new two-legged owner, then everybody's going to be happy and live happily ever after. We had one dog that had been in and out and in and out of his forever home six different times. And they were ready to pull the plug on him, you know? And guess what? We solved it. Wow. So that's got to feel really good, right? Well, that's the whole point, is you can be taught medicine and surgery, but you have to also take on these other things like behavior issues with the four-legged creature right. and the behavior issues <laughs> of the two-legged creature. Say, you're not just training a, a four-legged creature, you're training a two-legged creature at the same time. Honestly, that was the most common statement people would come to me with. They said, I don't know about the dog, but I sure learned a lot. <laughs> yeah. So we, we almost changed the name of the place to Willow Creek Two-Legged Training. You know? Obedience school for, for dog owners. Yeah, for humanoids. <laughs> like a human. It's so funny to think that the owners often learned more than their dogs did in obedience training. Like I said at the start of this episode, our pets are a reflection of ourselves, and we grow together. Rick is retired now and married to his wonderful wife, Catherine. Catherine has played a really instrumental part in Rick's career development.
The funny thing about it, since I met and married Catherine some 25 years ago, that's where it all falls. But Catherine was also very, very instrumental in, let's say, she had a, a background in finance and banking and business and all this stuff. And she would say, you know, I would come home heavily laden with burdens and problems. And she'd know Rick spent 12 hours today talking to humanoids, uh, clients, about their pets. And so he doesn't want to talk right now. So I'm just going to sit here and listen to him. Okay? Right. And she'd listen to my issues and whatever I would spew out of me. Uh-huh. And then we'd say goodnight and we'd go to sleep. And the very next morning she'd wake up and she'd say, Rick, this is what you need to do about this. She had slept on the problem and solved it. And she's so she always was, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Funny how that is. The thing was, you know, early on, I was jealous of people that had normal lives and normal families and right. things like that, because that's all I ever wanted. And then, you know, the military came along, school came along, everything like that. And it just didn't happen. And then I, I ended up working and I enjoyed my work so much. I just fell into it and just... Really, really enjoyed it. But the funny thing was, I was with another person once upon a time, and it just didn't work out. And then I was single for a long time, and then I crossed bridges with Catherine, who I'd known for quite some time, since 1986. And anyway, we got together. We became pen pals first. She had sent me a Christmas card at Christmas time in 1995. Uh And it was a picture of her with her little three-year-old daughter on it. And there was no picture of her husband or anything like that. And so we wrote back and forth letters. And and then all of a sudden, one thing led to another. I went and saw her and she came and saw me. And and then we became an item. And Uh we've been totally happy ever since. I think Rick is a very lucky man. But who else would Rick identify as mentors in his life? I could say Dr. Barry Quinn was uh, definitely influenced your life and my life as well. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, (laughs) I remember when I first started there with you in our our class, we were scared to death of him. (laughs) And then when we graduated, it's, oh, you can call me Barry. (laughs) Right, yeah, yeah. But he was very regimented and very, he, he was probably the finest educator I've ever met in my life. What kind of traits about him? Just a couple of traits that you identify. Well, just that he took his job so seriously, whether he be teaching pre-med people like ourselves uh-huh. or nursing students or whatever, but he made sure that they got an education. And another mentor of mine is you. Oh, well, thank you, Rick. We've been friends for years, okay? And even though you're younger than I am, uh-huh. I've always looked up to you, oh, okay? Wow. And I've always appreciated you had direction and you had a goal and you wanted to achieve that. Uh-huh. And I'll never forget that uh, you applied to all these v- dental schools across the country uh-huh. and you got accepted to every one of them. Uh-huh. And I said, what are you waiting for, Kim? And you said, University of Oregon. Right. <laughs> and I was. And they were the very dead last school. I gained from your experience. Oh, that's well, what I'm thank saying. You, Rick. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. You're truly an extraordinary individual, Rick. Was that something that you think is just a part of how you're made? Or is it something 
that you learned? Right. Or is it something that you chose? Or is it, or is it all three? You know, I have to go back to good old Mark Twain. Uh-huh. He said, I never, ever let my schooling interfere with my education. <laughs> we should all become lifelong students, uh-huh. whether we're in a school or outside doing something else. We should be learning all the time. Yep. It doesn't have to be, uh, I mean, there's all kinds of things you can learn to do. And I think, uh, you know, with me, I, I never thought myself as extraordinary. Never, never, never. I was ordinary. That was me. I look back, okay, at, you know, that time when I, I left for the military and I came back, uh-huh. okay? When I left for the military up here at the University of Utah huddle, there was a whole group of my friends sitting around the coffee table, and they were all sitting there playing cards, hearts. And I was gone for four years. I came back, and I walked into that same coffee shop, and guess what? Same people were sitting around playing cards. And I went over and said hi to them and goodbye. I've got things to do. Yeah, you got a life to go that you want to go pursue. Right. So it's one of these things where people really need to learn that they have innate abilities. Marriage, I mean, I've learned this over the years, is to be successful, you really have to be a partnership, you know? Truly a partnership. And she's always got my back, and I've always got her back. And she'll say, oh, are you mad at me about this? And I'd say, heck, no, I'm not mad at you about that. You know, that was perfectly okay. You did the right thing. How come you always do the right thing? Right. <laughs> so, Why don't you ever give me something to get mad at you yeah, about? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, but we just, I never do. I never do. I'll be 72 shortly, and I don't feel it. I... I uh, exercise every day. I ride my bicycle nearly every day when there's the weather's good. Uh, physical fitness is important to you. Oh, very much so. What's one thing about you that you would say most people don't know? Ooh, goodness. You know, I'm honest and trustworthy and things like that. And, yeah, yeah. And people that uh, appreciate people like that, then right. we're great friends. I don't pull any punches or... I don't like to do the negativity thing and yeah. can't stand victims. It's just like, get over it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just get up and start moving. Right. You know? <laughs> exactly. And motion is the potion, you know? I appreciate having you invite me to do this. I, uh, I'm very honored to do so, but I still hold myself as ordinary. <laughs> but now you've put into the back of my head there may be this extraordinary thing, but. I, I'm I'm ordinary, you know. And I'm not <laughs> Rick, a sh- you are you are anything but I, ordinary. I'm not ashamed of admitting it. Okay. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And you know, it's uh, humility is another really strong trait of extraordinary people, Rick. I want to thank you for being here with us today. Uh, I think my audience here, it's uh, my tribe here at Contrary to Ordinary really enjoyed learning about you and your life story um, and what makes you you. And I really appreciate you being here and thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great honor. Whether you love animals or loathe them, I think you can appreciate what Rick's out-of-the-box thinking has done for veterinary medicine. In dentistry, we've really only just come around to the idea that what happens in the mouth is connected to our overall health. 
And I think Rick's commitment to animal training and discipline mirrors that holistic approach nicely. Thank you so much to my dear friend, Dr. Rick Campbell, for taking the time to talk with me. I cherish our friendship and really appreciate you being so open and honest with our listeners. And thank you for coming on this journey with me today. Around here, we aim to inspire and create connections. We can't do it without you. If this conversation moved you, made you smile, or scratched that little itch of curiosity today, please share it with the extraordinary people in your life. And if you do one thing today, let it be extraordinary. Extraordinary.